who's paddled in the sea knows something about the power of waves. Uh, in the summer, I took my family to St. Andrews on holiday, and they love paddling on, in the sea on the West Sands. Uh, my five-year-old and three-year-old at the time did their best to stay on their feet, but even for them, uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, even when we were only 40 feet away from the shore, uh, in only two or three feet of water, um, the waves well, they, they, they made me feel a little unsteady and certainly made my kids lose their footing altogether, which is rather fun. Uh, you f- and the point is, you felt their power, these waves, even the little ones. Now imagine then what it would be like to be hit by a big wave. Um, apparently, the most dramatic tides and the biggest waves that you can find on the planet can be found on the east coast of Canada, the very open place. It's called the Bay of Fundy. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Sorry, I was a bad joke. Every day, 200 billion tons of water crash in and drag out of this bay. That's basically the same as the daily outflow of every freshwater river in the world. In one go, crashing in and dragging out of this place. Now, we felt the power of the little waves. Imagine feeling the power of those waves. The coastline there is constantly battered. And no human being could actually withstand the force of these waves. The only thing that stands, really, are the rocks and the cliffs. You know, the hard stuff. (laughs) But even they're wearing away gradually. I mention that to say that in our text today, we find uh, people of God buffeted by waves of varying intensity. You have the little waves of some kind of political toing and froing. And then you have the big waves of targeted persecution. And in the midst of it, you have God's people, some of whom seem to be losing their footing, but some of whom are standing firm. The question is, why does God show Daniel this vision? Having shown him the reality of spiritual warfare, if you like, in chapter 10, why this vision? Why is it in our Bibles? Why are we dealing with it tonight? Well, one of the reasons is that it shows us what happens in the past in order to help us to be ready for what will happen in the future. The waves, the big waves, the tidal waves that folks of God's people have experienced in the past are effectively used by God to prepare us for, well, a tsunami to come. And the hope is... That being prepared for that, those who know God will stand firm on that day and ultimately share truly in the triumph of Christ. So we're going to look at Daniel 11 in two slices. Verses uh, 1 to 35, history, buffeted but standing firm. And then verses 36 to 47, prophecy, prepared for the wave to come. So number one, history, buffeted by standing firm. Two, prophecy prepared for the wave to come. Let's look at number one, first of all. I mentioned to you that verses 2 to 20 are like a time-lapse video. You know what those are like. Images where are taken over a long period of time are played back and fast-forward. Um, the Queen's Ferry Crossing is, is making progress. Construction began across the 4th in 2011, August 2011, just over three years. It, you know, you drive past and you see little bits. Oh, they've put up a new bit. The, 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 the feet are just, the legs are a, bit, a little bit taller or something like that. But you know you can go online to, 
just Google the Queen's Ferry crossing and you can watch the last three years in three minutes and see how it all goes up. That's what the time-lapse video is like. And that's what verses 2 to 20 do for us with four to 500, well, three to 400 years of Middle Eastern history. And in order really to grasp what's going on in verses 2 to 20, because it's still important for us to consider, I actually need to give you three lessons. It's going to be like being back at school, okay? I'm going to give you a history lesson, a geography lesson, and a theology lesson, okay? You're thrilled at that prospect. The history lesson first. I hope you weren't this misbehaving in school. Anyway, when history lesson, first of all, the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? These are the guys who are king when Daniel is having this vision, right? The Medes and the Persians are in power. But when that empire fell, it fell to Greece, to Alexander the Great. That's verse three's mighty king. Do you remember him from our studies in chapter eight? He was the guy who took over the known world at the rate, you know, like Usain Bolt, you know, with barely even touching the ground. He is the one who dies with no one to succeed him. So his vast empire, as verse 4 says, was broken up and parceled out. And that's what actually happened. Four of his generals took over four regions in the north, south, east, and west. And over time, two of these kingdoms grew to dominate the north kingdom and the south kingdom, southern kingdom. And that's what verses 5 to 20 talk about. Now, this northern kingdom is called the Seleucid kingdom. And the southern kingdom, known as the Ptolemaic kingdom, these guys were just constantly vying for superiority and supremacy in this part of the world. There were so many different types of polit- political maneuverings. And at times, their rivalry was subtle. So they tried to trick one another by forming little covert alliances, like you see in verses 6 and verses 17, where they gave daughters to marry into the royal line of the opposition. Verse 17, by the way, is talking about Cleopatra. Um, Many will have heard of her. But in essence, this text shows us that these alliances didn't work and that most of the time their rivalry was, well, brutal. There was bloodshed. They would send invading armies back and forth with the aim of crushing their enemies. And that, you'll be glad to know, is the end of the history lesson. Now the geography lesson. Lesson. I think this is what helps us understand why this toing and froing of these invaders of the north and south is a big problem. Let me show you a map of the Middle East. Well, this is my map of the Middle East. Here is the northern kingdom. Okay? Here is the southern kingdom. What's in between? Israel. God's covenant people are stuck right in between. Smack dab in the middle. This so-called glorious land, or the beautiful land as it's referred to in this text, is glorious because it's the land of the covenant. It's the land of promise. God said, if you follow me, serve me, I'm going to take you, I'm going to give you this land, a land flown of milk and honey, and it's going to be yours. It's a land of promise. Now, let me show you the visual summary of what happens in the toing and froing between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Okay, what you've got, the dashed lines are basically the ones when they're trying to make a nice wee happy alliance. Hey, I've got a lovely daughter. I think she likes your son kind of thing. And then you've got the, the, the thicker lines, the solid lines refer to um, the actual warfare that took place. The thick, thick lines are when the warfare was becoming increasingly intense. It's lots of backwards and forwards across. And God's people stuck in the middle. They had a hard time. What do you think it was like for them? The only way you could get to this northern kingdom was through Israel. The only way you could get to this southern kingdom was through Israel. Years ago, Catherine and I went to Northern Ireland for a wedding. 
um, must have been over 10 years ago now. It was round about the time of the 12th fortnight, um, which can be a tense time in Northern Ireland. Um, we were travelling with Catherine's mum and dad, and uh, her dad was driving, and somehow, not long after coming off the ferry, we took a wrong turn, and we ended up on a road. And <laughs> it was a bit of an unusual road. It was unusual in the sense that it had rocks all over it. And we were like, that's strange. And all of a sudden we looked to our left and we just saw this big long line of grey police cars with their lights on um, and policemen with full riot gear on. And we were like, they're waving. We're like, no, he's pointing. In other words, move back was what we heard when we when we put the window down and and we saw these police cars actually had their griddles you know their gridiron shields down over the windscreens and so and then we turned around and looked to our right and then we saw a whole line of people with balaclavas and rocks and bottles on this side we had driven would you believe it into the middle of a standoff I've never said the word reverse as quickly and as frantically as I did that night and sure enough we got out to there thankfully before anything kicked off. It would have been a terrible thing to be stuck in the middle of that standoff. But here's the thing for Israel. It's good for us. We could move. Israel couldn't move. The nation was stuck. It suffered as a consequence. They were like these Hopewell rocks on the Bay of Fundy. They're just constantly battered by wave after wave of invading army, plundering as they went. Now the theology lesson. It's really, what does it all mean in other words? Why is it in the Bible? Why is God concerned about this? Why do we have it to read? Well fundamentally this teaches us the same message that Daniel 8 teaches us. You know with the vision of the ram and the goat and the little horn. Knowing what awaits you settles and steals you. I told the story in that um, a sermon about my brother-in-law jumping out at me from behind the curtain. But the difference it makes when you see him hide, when you see what's coming, you're prepared for it when it comes. Well, remember, God's people are being pre-warned about this. We look back on this and we see history. They were getting it as prophecy. It was in the future. It was still to happen. And God's people, pre-warned about persecution, can brace themselves for it and not abandon the faith when it comes. That's why in chapter 11, Daniel is told this is what's going to happen in days to come. God's people are going to be battered by waves because of the evil forces. They like to trample God's people underfoot. And Daniel receives this as prophecy. We, to us, it's history. But when we trace, even with incredible accuracy, the fulfillment of these predictions, what it does for us today it strengthens us and helps us to stand firm even when battered by waves in our own day. Now we're able to say, oh yeah, that's right. This proves to us again, chapter 11 in Daniel, that God is in control. Despite the swirling tides of human history, his plan's on track. So you see, passages like this are basically written to strengthen us. They require of you not just a quick, vague reading, but some investigation, some careful study. It's the kind of thing you can, I'm not talking about taking a course at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, I'm talking about a good study Bible, a cheap commentary. These are things that help us understand texts that we 
maybe won't at first understand. Do you have that kind of diligence in your Bible reading? It's important for us to understand what God is saying to us and how he's helping us because these passages are written to strengthen us. That's what this kind of prophecy does. Let me give you a New Testament example. The Lord Jesus um, did the very same thing that chapter 11 does for us. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus predicts something terrible is going to happen. And it's something that no one in his band of 12 followers really expects. And it was this. One of his 12 is going to betray him. And this could actually cause one of those, the others in the 12, to lose their footing. I mean, they might be tempted to think, how could this man be God in the flesh if he couldn't even see that one of his own was a betrayer? But all that changes, that doubt is gone, when you hear Jesus say, the scripture says, he who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, he says, so that, now here's the purpose, when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Strengthened to stand firm. So that you'll not freak out and desert him when you get, when you experience a hard time. That's what Jesus is doing. The faith of his followers is strengthened by seeing something that Jesus himself predicted take place. And we should be grateful for words like this because the things that are yet to take place, some of the things that are still to take place are terrible. The swirling tides of 2 to 20 are in the past, but Jesus warns us in Matthew 24 that in the future, even beyond our time, there will be wars and rumors of, of wars The church may be caught up in the middle of political wranglings again and again and again, but his kingdom really will prevail. He is building his church, spreading his gospel to all nations. When that happens, then the end will come. He will bring judgment as he returns in glory. As we were taught in chapter 10, we are in an epic battle, but the lamb wins. The lamb wins. I think we need this kind of reminder for sometimes the waves crash against us with such unspeakable force. I think that's what verses 21 to 35 show. Remember the slow-mo video? Here the narrative slows down. And therefore so should we. Uh, We should pay attention, pay close attention when that happens in, in Bible story. The time frame in view is very brief and concerns the man called Antiochus IV. Uh, This is the same guy who was represented by the little horn in chapter 8. So I'm not going to go into great detail on this. Verse 21 calls him a contemptible person. Verse 24 to 25 tells us he's just like his predecessors, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. He's got his eye, though, as a king of the north. He's got his eye on the southern kingdom again. And here's what happens. He makes two failed attempts to conquer it. Both times he's turned back. And it's on the journey back. Where is he journeying through? Israel, God's people, are going to be the target of his anger. Verse 28 says, his heart will be set against the holy covenant. That is the holy promise. That is a way of talking about God's people. Why is this? Well, remember chapter 10. Evil forces are at work behind the scenes to trample God's people underfoot at every opportunity that they've got. And then verses 29 to 30 tell us that after the second attempt of this Antiochus to go down and crush the kingdom of the south, this Ptolemaic kingdom, um, it fails. Israel is devastated. Here's how the story goes. Not from biblical history, but from normal history. 
Antiochus Epiphanes is within inches of Egypt. He's within inches of raiding the southern kingdom. But verse 30 tells us actually what happens. That ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. By the way, you get this history from a guy called Josephus. You can read about him online. Feel free. (laughs) Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. In other words, here come the Romans. Okay, History tells us that just as Antiochus was about to go into Egypt, a Roman fleet was sent down and one guy, the commander of this fleet called Popillus, rode ashore on his own, stood as one man before Antiochus and his army and basically demanded of him a U-turn. Rome decrees that you do not touch Egypt and you go home. Antiochus, with his army <laughs> behind him, said, I'll think about it. Well, Papillus took a reed, and he walked around Antiochus and drew a circle around his feet. And he stood back and he looked at him with Roman arrogance and said, you'll decide before you step out that circle. How cool is that? It's like something at the movies, isn't it? And so Antiochus felt threatened for other reasons, turned around and returned home. But in verse 30, we see that Antiochus was so furious and on his way home, he kicked the proverbial dog. The dog in this case was Israel. He will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, showing favor to those who, what? Forsake the Holy Covenant. So Antiochus hit Jerusalem like a tidal wave crashes on land. He devastated it. And when the wave of his fury came crashing down, when he barred religious worship, when he barred circumcision, when he set up the abomination that causes desolation in the temple, the holy of holies for God's people, a statue of Zeus and sacrificed pigs on it and killed thousands of Jews, some forsook God. They disowned him. And turned their backs on him. I suppose you could say. They're like the people in the parable of the sower. Whose hearts at first maybe received the word with joy. But when trouble. When persecution comes. Quickly fall away. Yet verse 32. Contains some encouraging words for us. But the people who know their God. Will firmly resist him. Resist the enemy. What does it mean? Well, it means that knowing God, knowing God has the power to sustain you, to keep you strong, even when waves crash against you with fury. Do you see that? The two go together, knowing God, truly knowing God, and standing firm. Actually, the original word for resist that we have here really has a more positive meaning to it. It's not just firmly resist him, it's Stand firm in resistance and take action. Stand firm, take action. Now we hear stories of persecution in Iraq and Syria. I think it should be a frightening thing for us. And we can listen to Jesus' prophecies concerning the end in Matthew 24 or Paul in 2 Timothy 2 concerning the man of lawlessness to come at the end. And we might worry, well, 
we live in peaceful times just now, but when that comes, will I, will I have the strength to stand in a time like that? I, well, Daniel 11 says, if you really know God, you'll stand firm. We do live in a time of real calm. I don't, we're not, at this point, buffeted by waves. But we cannot afford to be lazy when it comes to our faith. It, if hard times come, I want to warn us tonight, as I warn myself, we can't just think that we switch on resilience. I don't think it works that way. I think God does give people sufficient grace and strengthening in those days. But Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew 7, it's the building of lives on his words and walking in obedience to his commands that build us up and strengthen us and enable us to stand firm. These are quiet days for us, but here's the key for us. If we can grow strong on the quiet days, we'll be equipped to stand on the tougher days when things get a bit noisy and difficult so reading the word and praying its promises day by day week by week year by year strengthens us builds us up if you like wave proofs us here again is the importance for parents with little children are you spending time teaching them the word not just reading the word with them and ticking the box but teaching them what it means preparing them for facing the hardship and trials that they experience it's the importance of discipleship in the home. Are you attending a small group setting where you have people speaking into your lives who are able to serve you and your understanding of the word as you serve them and their understanding of it so that together you're being built up and strengthened in the faith to face things, hard things to come. We need these things. This is a message we need because verses 36 to 45 prepare us for the wave to come and this is the second point where previous verses match up really precisely quite remarkably with historical events of the past verses 36 to 45 uses use different language and time scales to show that we're not really dealing with an extension of this guy Antiochus but we're dealing with someone like him I think that's why the narrative slows down he is a type of one to come. He is a shadow of one to come. And these verses point beyond Antiochus, beyond Jesus, beyond us, it seems, to the end, to a time to show us the tsunami that is the Antichrist. Now, the main thing that tells us that we're dealing with the end actually is Daniel 12, which is the, the final part of this vision. The grand climax of this vision speaks of a great resurrection. And a day of judgment. It's the winding up of world history. That means in all likelihood that what we're dealing with here in these verses, from verse 36 and following, is the same character that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2, called the man of lawlessness, or the man of sin. In verses 3 to 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, he's talking about the last day, will not come until the rebellion, or the day Jesus returns. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Now, as you go back to verses 36 to 37 in Daniel 11, see if you can recognize any of the similarities between the way the man of lawlessness is described in 2 Thessalonians 2 and the way that this king is described, the one who exalts and magnifies himself above every god and says unheard of things, that's blasphemies, against the god of gods. Strikingly similar. And I think Daniel 11, in this vision, this vision is showing us a future figure who will rampage with all the ferocity of a tsunami. And James, uh, Jesus warns us about this man. Paul warns us about this man. The Apostle John warns us about this man. Many antichrists have come, but antichrist is still to come. Even Daniel warns us of this man. Why? To prepare us to face him. The thing that gives us almighty strength to stand firm, even when we feel the full force of this tsunami, is, as we've said earlier, knowing God and standing firm. The two things go together. But Daniel gives us a second insight, knowing the end of this one called Antichrist. In verses 40 to 45, you basically have a description in vague terms of of this man of lawlessness's final flurry. He invades many countries, sweeping through them like a flood. He invades Israel. Verse 41 says God's people will be destroyed and God's enemies will be delivered. Moab, Edom, Ammon. These are God's enemies. They're the ones who are being rescued. Everything's the wrong way around. But finally, he sets out in monstrous rage to annihilate many. And he's just about to attack what verse 45 calls the holy mountain. I think a reference to Jerusalem. But then he's gone, just like that. Gone. Doesn't tell us how. It simply says in verse 45, read it with me. He will come to his end with no one to help him. What a dreadful prospect for anyone to face. Meeting your end with no one there to help you. Yet how simply is the fate of this man of lawlessness presented with 12 words in our English Bibles, six words in the Hebrew Bible. This exalted, fearful enemy of God and his people is gone and God's people are delivered and we see a final resurrection. We'll see that next week. Reminds us of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Later on in the chapter it says, the lawless, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. How? Will it be an epic battle? Will it be a struggle that goes on forever? Is Jesus going to have to call in the cavalry to come and help him? He will overthrow with, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy simply with the splendor of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Just by coming. Just by a word which takes us back to what Matt was telling us from chapter 10. That in the end, Jesus wins. Christ triumphant 
ever reigning. Despite the toing and froing of northern kingdom and southern kingdom and the, the battering that God's people get along the way, the message of Daniel, the refrain of Daniel again and again and again, week after week after week is kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but the Lord's kingdom lasts forever. His dominion shall see no end. And nothing, nothing in the world can change that. Not even the tsunami of a man of lawlessness. Jesus wins. But as we looked at at the start of our service from Colossians 2, his victory was won long ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into this world. John tells us he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. No, his own people, Israel, rejected him. They conspired against him to have him crucified. And Jesus is one who died with no one to help him. Jesus died on the cross. No Jew was there to help him. They were calling for his life. No family member could help him because the Romans were governing this crucifixion. His friends had forsaken him. And at the very end, even as we hear from the cry of Christ, his father had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken He died as one utterly forsaken. Enduring separation from God in those moments of death. In order that people like us could, if we turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, would hear him say of us, never will I leave you or forsake you. And to hear him say things like, in this world you may have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have told you all this before it takes place, so that when it does, you will believe that I am he. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I would love for you to come and join me in my office. And let me show you how the historical account that I've been addressing tonight from Middle Eastern history fits with what was predicted 400 years before it happened. I would love to show you from the book of Daniel the veracity and the truth of the Bible to give you confidence then as you read the bits that you really need to pay attention to concerning what it means to repent and believe the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we are called to recognize that God's people, in knowing their God, are unable to stand firm in him. He helps us when the waves come. Be confident in that. When through, even when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, his grace all sufficient shall be your supply. Trust him and let us be a family together who help each other to trust him more. Let's bow our heads.